So today we're going to start to look at the question of the history of hell, in part because Satan finds a home in hell in some of the stories of Satan. That's the place Satan actually dwells, or is trapped, or is punished, or what have you. So we need to ask the question of where did hell come from, and bring us sort of up to date into the Middle Ages. Dante's Inferno is the culmination of a whole lot of elements of hell coming together. And so he writes in the 13th century, and that's sort of like the, 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 when the full-blown hell is on the scene. Even though it changes over time, even after that, and even though from one author to the next, or one think, Christian thinker to the next, hell might be somewhat different. It's not always the same. And we have to ask the question of how does Satan relate to hell in the different configurations and understandings of hell? It's different depending on which writing or which person we're looking at. One of the points we're going to see is, as with Satan, the history of hell is quite complicated as well. Its origins come from a mixture of cultural spheres that played a role in the development of hell, and they're quite similar to the spheres of uh, cultural spheres that played a role in the history of Satan as well. So I'll begin by just talking about some of the precursors to hell before getting into some of our early Christian images of hell and then especially focusing in on something that develops out of apocalyptic literature and that is the idea of getting a tour of heaven and hell and this whole genre of a tour of hell actually becomes a common genre of literature in the Middle Ages culminating in, in Dante's Inferno that you read a couple passages from. Hell, in the sense in which we start to understand it, emerges contemporary with Satan's emergence. It's within the apocalyptic worldview that hell starts to take an important role within Judean apocalypticism. So it's once again around 225 BCE, that same period when we first had that first story of the fallen angels, that we have the first story in the exact same writing, First Enoch, that you read, that we'll go back to today where you have the first emerging idea that will develop into hell, namely a pit in which those fallen angels are put. So it's 225 BCE, within the apocalypticism of Judean apocalypticism, that the seed of what hell will become emerges within that context. But we need to go back to some other cultural contexts in order to understand what came to play a role in the development of that seed within Judean apocalypticism. And there are several different cultural backgrounds that played a role. To begin with, our earliest evidence for any written civilization, as you know, is Mesopotamia. We talked about Mesopotamia back when we had the combat myth. So that's, we're talking going back to 3000, 2000 BCE, our first uh, evidence of anyone writing anything in the whole history of humanity is coming from Mesopotamia, Iraq, in that period. When we look at the literature produced within Mesopotamia, which includes the Babylonian literature, the Assyrian literature, and that, they have a concept of the underworld. They have a concept of the grave. However, it is not a developed concept, and they have no clear idea of an afterlife. For Iraq and Iran, ancient Mesopotamia, and even Ugarit, we do not have clear evidence that there's a notion of an afterlife, and therefore, we don't have any evidence, obviously, of the idea of separating people in the afterlife, because that, in essence, is what the hell is, right? 
It's one of the two, two places people in the afterlife go. But in the earliest evidence for uh, any writing, we don't have this idea developed at all, the idea of a, of a moral death, let's call it, as some scholars put it. We do not have that. The idea that after you die, you will be held accountable for something and therefore either be punished or rewarded. We don't have that in our earliest evidence is what I'm trying to draw attention to. So this is, uh, in a way, within apocalypticism, something relatively new. In Mesopotamian underworld, is the, the idea is it's the realm of Nergal, the god of the underworld. But the way in which it's described in the mythological material is just as a shadowy non-existence, in essence. The way they metaphorically put it is, you're going to bite the dust. We have that expression now. Well, they had the idea of what happens in the underworld, what happens in the grave, you eat dust. This is their main way of expressing what happens to you when you die. You eat dust. But it's really a metaphor for saying, you're dead, you're dead. There's not a real existence after death. I should mention that quite early on within Egyptian mythology, you do have an afterlife. When it first emerges in the period of 1000 BCE, it's clearly a place where only the kings and the upper classes go after they're dead. The idea of the general population going somewhere after you're dead just isn't there even in Egyptian mythology. But what scholars who study Egyptian mythology emphasize is there's a gradual democratization of that idea of a special place for special people. So to the point where gradually within Egyptian culture there is the notion of an afterlife that could be shared by people beyond just the pharaohs beyond just the most important people in society. Remember, the pharaohs were buried with all of their things, assuming that they would have a place in some sort of afterlife. So that gradually democratizes, but at first it's not a notion of everyone going somewhere after you're dead. And on top of that, there's not necessarily an emphasis at all on moral death. It's not an issue of whether you morally behave while you're alive, having an impact on where you end up, which is the essence of hell. That isn't there. So in the Egyptian Book of the Dead is the most famous, that's later in the process of this whole uh, development within Egyptian uh, culture. Within Israelite culture, we have the notion of Sheol, which is simply another way of saying the grave. Quite often it will be translated in your Hebrew Bible as the grave. The Israelites in the period before the emergence of apocalypticism show no indication of a belief in an afterlife. In some Judean groups, even in the time period when apocalypticism already has emerged, some Judean groups who are not apocalyptic do not even believe in such a thing as an afterlife. The most obvious example, just because it happens to be referred to in a couple pieces of literature, the New Testament especially, the Sadducees are a, a Judean group in the first century, quite influential in, in leadership in, in Judea and they do not believe in such a thing as an afterlife. So if you look through the Hebrew Bible, for incidences, you can even do a search on the grave on some online version of the Bible, and you'll be most likely seeing a passage where Sheol is referred to. The Israelite concept of that is almost exactly the same as the Mesopotamian concept of it. The grave is literally the grave. You go to the grave means you're dead, you're dead. Not that you're going to some place to be punished or go 
to some place to continue living or anything like that. The punishment God gives quite often in the Hebrew Bible for people who aren't doing the right thing is putting them down to shale, putting them in the grave. So the punishment there is not an idea of punishing you after you're dead. It's an idea of your punishment is you're going to be dead. God strikes you down when you do the wrong thing morally in the Hebrew Bible, and then you're dead, and there's nothing more. Greek concepts of the underworld are complicated because obviously we're generalizing in each of these cases, but it depends on which segment of Greek society you're looking at and also what time period you're looking at, what they think. The first thing I want to emphasize is that the vast majority of our evidence for what Greeks think, and this starts to also be true of the Romans to some degree, about what Greeks think about the afterlife is that they don't think much at all. It's not the focus of Greek religion. There are very few references to anything about what happens to you after you're dead in our evidence. It's just not the focus. The fact that it's just not the focus doesn't mean there aren't some Greeks philosophizing or intellectualizing about what might happen after you're dead. We do have evidence of that. Sometimes that plays a role in some Greek religion, but hardly ever. But generally speaking, there are just vague notions of an afterlife, if anything at all. So they share that in common uh, with Mesopotamia to some degree, but there's developing notions that are important here, and also concepts within mythology that will directly play a role in the development of Judean and Christian hell. In Greek mythology, going back to Hesiod, and then this gets taken on by Homer and others, and influences various Greeks' understanding of the gods, there are realms associated with particular deities. Kronos had several offspring, one of which was Zeus, one of which was Poseidon, and another is Hades. And these are three brothers in the Greek conception of it, most often. And the idea is that each of these brothers gets assigned a territory. This will help you understand why Hades is the god of the underworld. So Zeus is given the sky, Poseidon is given the oceans, and Hades gets to rule over the ground under your feet, which is also the grave. So that is the overall notion within which these other stories about going down into the realm of Hades are set. Within mythology, you have stories like Odysseus, the Odyssey, of Homer, which goes back to as far back perhaps as the 700s BCE, that poem has the idea of uh, Odysseus needing to go into the underworld, the main character in the, in the poem, goes into the underworld to consult a famous prophet in order to determine something about his life and about what to do in a particular circumstance. So we have examples like this, and Homer becomes sort of the model of other tours of the underworld, but they're not so much tours as they are visitations of a particular shade in the underworld. Now when we have in mythology, this, the early versions of it anyways, a person going into the grave, going down under the ground, going into the realm of the god Hades, the way in which it portrays dead people is as shadows. And these shadows can't do much at all, 
It's not so much of a life in the underworld. It's more of a faint recollection of a life. And when Odysseus wants to talk to a shade, they can't even talk. They can't do much at all. So the way that the dead are represented in Homer is as shades that can't do much at all. They're certainly not living in any way we would understand living. He has to do some fancy ritual in order to be able to talk to a shade. So the overall picture is that of the Greek ideas at the early stage. Very vague notions of existence in the underworld, but not really an existence in the sense of an afterlife. Something else. So these concepts here, even though they aren't the same as what they are in apocalypticism, the idea of an underworld, the idea of a god ruling over that underworld, uh, are quite important to the development of Satan, because Satan gets identified with Hades sometimes. And also the idea of Hades as a place comes important within the, uh, these developments in Judean culture. So these things, directly or indirectly, play a role in, in the apocalyptic notion of hell. However, the apocalyptic notion of hell is not here at all in the Greek material. You get it? It's bits and pieces from this Greek mythological picture that play a role in the Judean picture of hell and therefore in the Christian picture of hell. Something in the underworld is a, that is referred to in some literature is a place, a certain compartment within Hades' realm known as Tartaros. So that in some mythology, some of the Greek mythology, Tartaros is a place in Hades' realm where particularly rebellious people, no, where particularly rebellious gods get put in a prison to stop them from causing trouble. That will play a role in the development of the Judean concept of hell. However, it's, it's, it's not the same thing, is it? But at least there's this development of an idea of under the ground, in a certain compartment where Hades rules, there's a place where they trap the bad gods that cause trouble. So I, I'm trying to get through things fast today. Hopefully you're following that this is just looking at Greek mythology to see what, what, what aspects of it play a role in hell, even though hell's not here. When we get to the first century BCE, the idea of humans ending up in a place of punishment is a little bit more developed in some intellectual circles, but very little evidence of it being something your average Joe and Jane think about. Uh, of the evidence we have for the Greek and Roman world, by the Roman period, let's say, 1st century CE, 2nd century CE, the time when Christianity emerges, a lot of our evidence for Greek and Roman life comes from graves. Where would you expect people to refer to the afterlife? In graves. Where do you see absolutely no reference to the afterlife with very few exceptions? Once in a while you do, but almost never. The graves. You almost never see reference to an afterlife or the idea of where you go after you're dead on graves that have survived, uh, which sort of draws attention to the fact that some of these intellectualizing views that I'm about to explain do not reflect typical J Joe and Jane Greek perspectives. They reflect intellectual philosophical debates about uh, how to explain morality and how you should behave while you're alive and why that has some relation to what happens after you're dead, which starts to develop in Plato in the 4th century BCE but never gets taken on widespread in, in, in the general society 
and then gets re-expressed in a particular way by Virgil that has a direct relation to Dante's depiction of hell. Remember that Virgil is the tour guide in the 13th century uh, story about Dante going down and seeing what hell is like. Because Virgil wrote a story of a tour of, of the underworld as well, right, back in the first century BCE. So let me say something about these people, Plato and Virgil and other people like them, that reflect only a small percentage of the population of intellectuals who spend all their life leisurely reading and studying. It's in that context that the idea of a moral death, in some sense, emerges within Greek literature, but we don't see record of this being a widespread held view at all. Both Plato and Virgil have the idea that the soul is eternal. This is part of Platonic philosophy, right? This is the element that is eternal. Remember when we talked about Gnosticism, there's the idea in Platonic philosophy that everything has emerged from one good principle and that ultimately everything returns to that good principle in the end. Remember that idea within the Gnostic worldview, which is also Platonic view. Well, souls in this view are eternal and are part of that good principle from which they've come and to which they will ultimately return. I won't be able to go into the details of this, but depending on which writing of Plato you read, he has a different view on this. But what's consistent in the writings where he does hint at or explain the idea of an afterlife for the soul is that the soul is eternal and that what the soul does during life will have consequences after the soul is released from the body. In other words, there's a moral idea here that the souls that have done the right thing as best they can, whatever his philosophical definition of that is, during life, when released from the body, will have a different destination than the souls who have done less of what should have been done during their life. And remember, he has the idea of transmigration of souls as well, so that the souls return to bodies until they're finally released to go back to return to where, from where they came. So the consistent thing is that the moral issue is already introduced in Plato in the 4th century BCE. Namely, that the destiny of your soul or the treatment of your soul once it leaves the body or the place it goes once it leaves the body is determined to some degree by how good your life was as defined by Greek philosophy. Virgil develops that further and expands it, sort of drawing on the idea of like, the Odyssey's uh, trip to the, to the trip to the underworld. Uh, Virgil develops the Platonic ideas of different places and punishment for souls in connection with the idea of a tour of the underworld. And so Virgil has this whole story of Aeneas going to the underworld in order to witness what, uh, what is happening to different types of souls. It's within Virgil in the first century BCE that we have more of a sense of punishment in connection with whether you've lived a, uh, your soul has lived a good life or not lived a good life. And that, so it's contemporary with the emergence of Christianity and after the emergence of the idea of hell within Judean culture that you begin to have more of a, a more developed notion of a moral death where souls get punished in the underworld if they did not live morally according to what Virgil would understand morality to be. 
Okay, so that's a quick scan through the Greek uh, underworld. Uh, I want to emphasize something again, though. This last point, the bubbling up of ideas of a moral death and the idea of punishment or reward after you're dead, is not the standard. It's only in an intellectual circles that we find it, and we have very little evidence that the vast majority of people know anything about these ideas or focus on them. It's the philosophers that are doing that. In a way, the place that hell came from is quite related to the place that Satan came from. Remember Zoroastrianism? And also remember the problems we have in assessing the relation between Zoroastrianism and Judean culture because of that whole issue of the dates of writings. Right? and the date of Zoroaster. Uh, remember that Zoroaster may have lived in the 12th century BCE or the 6th century BCE, so definitely before ever you have Judean culture developing an apocalyptic worldview, Zoroaster lived, either way. But the, the issue of getting to what Zoroaster himself thought is complicated by the fact that all of our literature for Zoro Zoroastrianism from Iran is from the 6th century CE, not BCE, CE or later, but a thousand years after Zoroaster lived, is when the writings for Zoroastrianism in the form we have them came to be written down. So we're back, I wanted to remind you of that problem. But what I argued with regard to Satan is there's definitely some relationship between Zoroastrian dualism with Ahura Mazda versus Angramainu and the idea of the Judean concept of God versus Satan. There's some relation, it's hard to pinpoint it, and it's hard to know exactly what degree of influence Zoroastrianism had, and what degree of interchange went on between Judeans and Zoroastrians, so that each are influencing one another, perhaps. And we just don't have a way of figuring that out. We just have no way. But as with Satan, there is a clear relationship between Zoroastrian concepts of an afterlife and the Judean concepts within apocalypticism. In Zoroastrianism, you have the house of the lie and the house of good purpose. You have a very clear moral death in a way that you have it in no other cultural sphere that we've been talking about. So within Iranian Zoroastrian culture, you have very strongly stated moral death. A place you go if you behave morally bad and a different place you go in your life, if, if you behaved morally good in your life, you, if you behave badly, you go to the house of the lie. If you behaved well, you go to the house of good purpose. And this recurs in the Zoroastrian, all kinds of Zoroastrian writings, including the ones that most scholars would put earliest, or rather, the ones that come closest to what scholars believe would have been Zoroaster's own views. So Zoroastrian experts would say, the majority of them would say, there's not many of them, but the majority of them would say that Zoroaster himself seems to have had the idea of a moral death. The idea that there's an afterlife. Once you're dead and gone, there's consequences for how you've lived. To what degree you've lived in line with Lord Wisdom, Ahura Mazda, in fighting against the force, evil forces of Angermanyu, determines where you go after you're dead. So this is coming close, in a general way, to what we have within the Judean apocalyptic notion uh, of this. Also within the Zoroastrian worldview, you have 
the battle imagery that we've talked about that's also characteristic of Judean apocalypticism. The, in the case of Zoroastrian, Ahura Mazda versus Agramanyu in a battle, and that the world we live in is part of that battle, and that human beings take sides in the battle. And the side you take determines where you end up after you're dead. At the end of the battle between Ahura Mazda and Agramanyu, when Agramanyu, the evil force, is destroyed, or punished and destroyed, there's going to be a resurrection of human beings in the Zoroastrian literature. A judgment of the people who are raised from the dead, determining whether they go to a house of the lie or the house of good purpose. So this is the closest thing we have to Judean apocalyptic notions of what will eventually be called heaven and hell, but that we don't quite have that fully full-blown yet. The problem still, though, is the timing issue. Did all of this whole worldview I've just outlined for you exist in the time of Zoroaster? And it was it around there for, for 300 years before Judean apocalypticism developed a notion of moral death, a place you go after your dead that either leads to punishment or reward? Or was it later in the development, not in Zoroaster's time, but sometime between 600 BCE and 600 CE, that these ideas of resurrection and judgment developed? We don't know for sure. So it's a sad thing about ancient history generally, and, and it also holds for studying ancient religions, is that often our answer is we don't know things. And it's not exactly what a student likes to hear. You just like to know, what is it? Well, we don't know. Most often that's the answer for just about everything. Or a better point, I shouldn't be so pessimistic. We know with certain degrees of probability certain things. But we know nothing certainly. 